Alan, Celine, can I tell you guys a story? Say no. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say no, and then I just decided that I'm gonna tell the story anyways. It's a little bit of a long walk, but I promise you it all connects together. So Scott Patton, please stick with us for a few minutes here. Start your timer now. Summer of 1816 in the wonderful country of Switzerland, Celine, your ancestral homeland, in Lake Geneva, there was a, a collection, a gaggle of human beings who are epic romantics. It included Mary, who would eventually become Shelley before she was Mary Shelley. It included her soon-to-be husband, Piercy Bish Shelley, Lord Byron, uh, trying to escape England from one of his infamous uh, problems that he had. Maybe he was having an adulterous relationship with his sister or half-sister or something like that. And Lord Byron's personal physician, a man named, I believe, Pomodori or Polidori, they all got together in Geneva, Switzerland, in this beautiful little villa called Villa Diodati. And they wanted to make this trip to Switzerland a memorable one. They wanted to get away from England, and they wanted to just have a great time. What they didn't factor in is that 1816 would be what was known as the year without the summer. The year before, in April of 1815, a volcano had erupted in Indonesia called Mount Tamboro. It's one of the greatest volcanic eruptions in recorded history. It had something like 5,000 PSI worth of like buildup that just exploded hundreds of kilometers worth of material and spewed it into the air. And that dust and ash and pumice eventually circled around the globe and started to block out the sun and cause temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere to plummet, crops failed. This was an awful consequence of global climate linkage. But the thing that impacted our romantics in Via Diodati was the fact that it just rained all summer. There was no summer. And for people who had traveled to some place where they wanted to get away and enjoy the wonderful lushness that is Lake Geneva, it just was a bad run of luck. They were stuck inside all day long. And in the days pre-Instagram, pre-Twitter, we know what happens. Their minds start to wander and they start to fill their days with anything and everything that they could think of. I believe Lord Byron eventually took a lover, which is not surprising, or a paramour because he was just bored. And the Shelleys were doing everything that the Shelleys could possibly do. They were young at the time. They didn't have much money. They were only like 19 and 20. So, you know, there is a limited pool of things that they could do, but they had these great parties and had lavish discussions about all the big issues in the world, all the issues that are deep inside of everybody, things like the nature of humanity and, and does God exist and can people be brought back from the dead, like any sort of thing that you would imagine. In a world that's pre-Mad Libs, they needed to come up with a way to really entertain themselves, so they created a contest. And the contest was something that was going to be very, very simple. Write the best scary story that you could possibly write. And then we'll share them. So during the day, you would work on your stories. And at night, we would drink way too much sherry and then share our stories. Nobody knows what Piercy Bish Shelley wrote that's lost to history. The story that was written by Byron was this abomination about an old man and a young man in a graveyard, and it didn't make much sense or whatever. Mary Shelley, she had the worst case of writer's block in like the history of the world. Like she just couldn't come up with a story. She couldn't come up with anything at all until one night at like 3 a.m. she pops awake having had this vision in her mind of what she wanted her scary story to be. And she had been there with these other men having discussions about the nature of humanity and reincarnating or reinventing the dead. And she was just like, wait, I can jump on this. I can jump on this idea and I can make it my scary story. That summer in 1816, during this romantic period of time at Lake Geneva, she created what would eventually become Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, a story that she wouldn't publish for years. That was the moment that that story came into existence. 
Byron had a physician that was there with him. It was a guy whose name I said earlier, John Polidori. He was Byron's personal physician. He was a genius in his own right. He graduated from the University of Edinburgh with a doctor, a medical doctor degree when he was 19. Unfortunately, in England, you can't practice medicine or you couldn't at the time practice medicine with patients until you were like 25 or 26. But the loophole around that was if he was somebody's personal physician, he could practice medicine. He was quite a hater of his employer, Byron. He thought he was a very jealous man and he was a very, you know, take, take, take sort of person. So Polidori grabbed on to what was Byron's story about this old man and this young man and whatever. And he started to add some flavor to it. What Polidori eventually created was the idea of the modern vampire, the story behind Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was the first time that an author came up with the sort of dapper ladies man style vampire, as opposed to like the wild beast vampire that was more popular. It's just a testament to how very unexpected things can come from situations that you don't know too much about. And very unexpected things have come from this last month of bike racing in the United States. What we thought would be great racing has turned into the greatest racing recent time. What we thought would be good crits or exciting crits has shown that you can create live streams with high quality feeds and great, you know, broadcasters who know their stuff. This has truly been the least expected month when it comes to bike racing in the United States. And of all the things that this month of bike racing has proven to us, it's that bike racing in the United States is alive oh boy it was a long walk but it was totally worth it i'll tell you what i definitely got my steps in on that walk and the whole time i was wondering where we were going but (laughs) (laughs) my name is rob kelly my name is celine oberholzer and i'm alan schroeder and this is the criterium nation podcast the show about life lived one corner at a time we are members of the wide angle podium network of shows We are proud members, I should say. The Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows is the internet's premier collection of top-tier independent cycling media. Go to wideanglepodium.com to check out the full lineup of shows. When you're there, please consider becoming a subscriber. And if you want Rob's intros to be less than five minutes, please donate. We were were just over on that one, I think. (laughs) Uh, we are also sponsored this month and all months, it seems, by Source Endurance. They are a one-stop shop for endurance coaching needs. Probably pretty responsible for some of the excellent racing we've seen the last couple months. They are where I go for my coaching needs. They're where the newly crowned National Criterium or Collegiate National Criterium champion, Ama Insek, gets his coaching done. Uh, yeah, if you are interested in a coach or a dietitian or pre-made plans, training plans for maybe your next Belgian waffle ride or any race that you've got coming up, you can go to source-e.net and check out what they've got, got to offer. And then when you do find something, you can use the promo code Criterium Nation, all one word, for $50 off. Boom. You got it. $50 off your first month of coaching services. This week, we are also brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. Manscaped Manscaped.com is your place, borrowing Alan's words, your one-stop shop for the best in men's grooming equipment, men's grooming supplies, men's grooming everything that you need. This month, the Ultra Smooth package is back. That's right. I got to do that one again. I got to get deeper. I got to be very white on this bad boy. It's the Ultra smooth package it's all the things that you're going to need for that nether region the below the belt area the part where it goes into your bibs you've got things like the crop exfoliator you've got the crop shaver you've got the crop gel you've got things that are there to help smooth up those lower parts of your body it's not all that Manscaped makes. Obviously, they make the Lawnmower 4.0 that we've talked about a bunch, the Weed Whacker that helps keep your nose and ears looking fresh. 
because, you know, we're starting to get back to that point in time where we're seeing people in person. And when you get to see people in person, as opposed to on Zoom, for example, you don't want to scare them. You don't want, you know, the rainforest coming out of your nose. Pick up the weed whacker, pick up the lawnmower and trim things up. Make yourself presentable. Go to manscaped.com, check out what they've got there. And when you find what you want, use Criterium Nation for 20% off plus free shipping. So, Alan, Celine, thank you for joining us from Lockhart, Texas, the home of the, uh, I'm not sure, what was it that was really, really cool in Lockhart, Texas? It's like the... It's the barbecue capital of the world. Ooh, it's also the Caldwell County Jail and the Southwest Museum of Clocks and Watches. I I gotta check this bad boy out. All the bases covered there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> barbecue, jails, and watches. What more? What more could you want? <laughs> that, that that could be a full day right there. Just one stop to the next. So, guys, we've had tons of really great racing, and it's been a few months or a few weeks since we all checked in together. Though, so we've got Sunny King, Redlands, Gila and Athens slash Speed Week. We've got a lot of crits. We've got a lot of road races. We've got a lot of GC battles. I wanted to start, though, rather than starting with Sonny King and working our way chronologically forward, I want to start here with, Alan, with your teammate, Sean the Gardener. Never done any gardening in his life, just for the record. <laughs> Does Sean Burger ever eat burgers, or is that a misnomer, too? Ooh. I haven't seen him eat a burger, but I'm sure he does. Did Sean Gardner just reinvent cycling in the United States? That is the question. And, and here's here's how we get to that question. I get, you know, the Gila ends and I get a series of text messages from one of my inside sources in bike racing saying that Sean's win in the GC in the men's race at the Gila is a testimony to where American road racing has come from and where it's going. It is this idea of finally establishing sustainability in a model that is sustainable in the United States, rather than having these teams that are you know, a ton of money and you go out and you buy the best riders and you you have only people who are focused exclusively on bike racing and, and doing bike racing only, you get these teams like Project Echelon, like CS Velo, like Nashville Local Cycling or Good Guys Racing or whatever it happens to be. These teams that have working professionals, guys that have full-time jobs, who are also trying to excel in the sport of bike racing, and now they've got the support and the place to go. So you can have somebody who isn't 23 years old or younger, but is getting support necessary or commensurate with his level of talent and where he's going in the sport. We're going to turn this and ask about women in a second, but I get the feeling that the answer to that is uh Duh. That's how women's bike racing in the United States has always been. Women have PhDs, MDs, JDs, you know, engineering degrees. We've always been doing all of it and bike racing. So, Alan, start with with Sean. Tell us, first off, what did he do at Gila that was so damn special? Man, that, that's hard to say. I mean, the thing about Sean and, like, if you paid any attention during COVID to him, just like doing his Everstings is that he is the most understated person that you will ever meet on a bike. He just like is so nonchalant about everything that he does that he almost makes it seem like he's not trying, but of course he is. And like, he trains very, very hard for him to just be so like overlooked to the point that when he finished the race, like all of the officials, Brad Soner, everybody that was there, like didn't even realize that he was close to winning. Yeah, so he's he's definitely doing it for the working class. I don't know, just making it <laughs> look easy, I guess, or 
It's just really, it's he's just a really fun guy to watch. Yeah, and you you mentioned the Everesting thing. I, I mean, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the guy who held the world record in Everesting for an extended period of time would also be pretty good at stage five of the Gila, which is the famed Gila monster stage. You know, it's 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 hard. I mean, I'm just looking at it on a screen and it looks hard. Yeah, it's gnarly. And I mean, you know, with for how much climbing there is, there's also a bunch of descending, which usually is like a reprieve. But the descents out there in Silver City are so steep and so technical that you still have to be on it and like really paying attention to what you're doing that you don't really get any sort of recovery from that. But yeah, Sean specifically, I mean, he's been he's been racing for a long time now. Uh, so I think his Everesting record, how long he's been racing, like it's really no surprise. He's been one of the best climbers in the country in the U.S. Peloton for a long time. Uh, so this just feels like a culmination of everything that he's been working on and working towards over the last 10 years. Well, I guess he hasn't been. I don't know if he's been racing since that long, but yeah, he has results going back to 2013. So that's nine years. Oh, geez. when he was uh, on Virginia Tech, I think I was in this race. Uh, but like, you know, Sean's been around. He's been around. He's been on teams like Gateway Devo, obviously a team that we've talked about a lot. A great place for folks who were U24. You know, that they would go and they would, you know, get the tools and get the benefit of being in a program that's very well supported and then try to move on to the next. He was part of Kelly Benefits, you know, their amateur elite team back when it was under the, you know, the the watchful eyes of people like Zach Gregg and Curtis Windsor. So, like, he's been in the ranks there, but, like, everything. It takes a long, long time to develop as an athlete. It's not something that happens overnight. You find anecdotal evidence of somebody like blowing up and suddenly becoming the greatest something ever. But like to be a sustained athlete over a long period of time and to grow and continue to grow, it takes a lot of, of just extreme effort. This wasn't the first time that he did. He, uh, you know, I, he's, been doing it since like at least 2018, maybe 2017. And, you know, like in 2017, when he went to do it on the final stage, he DNF'd. Like the stage before that, he got 100th out of 85. That was a crit. Uh, yeah, I don't know how he gets 100 out of 85 racers, but that that's what the results say. If anybody could do it in a crit, it's Sean. <laughs> But like it's this gradual progress up the ranks, just having people in supporters who are there to believe in you and give you a chance to get better and better and better. And the same can be said not just about, you know, Sean and CS Velo, but can be said about somebody like the humble hammer, George Simpson. You know, George won the time trial at Gila. Uh, this year, he won the time trial at Gila in in quite dramatic fashion. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the time that George, you know, did in that time trial was better than George did when he was racing basically full time as a professional, you know, with Gateway Devo also. And so you see these people who are getting the buy in from sponsors like Ventum or Argon, you get people who are on teams that are willing to work with guys who have real jobs, like nine to five office type jobs, and then give them an opportunity to race when they can race and support them as best as they can when they 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 race. I mean, you're you're a guy, Alan, who has a nine to five job, right? True. Yeah. Is this the sustainable model that we have? been looking for in the United States is CS Velo is project echelon our teams that are built around supporting people to become the best version of the athlete that they are the way forward. I mean, I want to, I want to say yes. I think things are a lot different now than they were perhaps 10 years ago when the tour of Utah was happening <clears throat> tour of California and, you know, we had Elevate and um, Rally was racing a lot in the United States. Like, 
definitely we're seeing it's a different level of racing, but the teams are supporting people who are like dedicated to this and you know, somebody who has a full-time job but is still wanting to do this, like you can be sure that they're going to do everything they can to show up to the race in like good form. And then what you also have is when you're bringing on younger riders, like straight out of college or even pre-college, you have people who have done races that can help kind of like those younger kids grow and learn and know how to balance like a full life with racing. You don't just have people or kids who have been living in this cycling bubble their whole lives who know nothing else but pedaling a bike. So I think that like there's a lot of benefits to the the way things are are kind of turning out coming out of the post-COVID era and I guess maybe a, after seeing a pretty big dip in road cycling in the U.S. Celine, is, was my initial statement of, well, duh, is that just, is this just common knowledge among the women's Peloton that like you got to be a real life adult in order to play at bikes too? I mean, yeah, it actually even came into my mind right before you said it. So I don't know if you read my mind or had already thought about it previously, but I'm thinking about just probably 95% of the women's Peloton people that I line up against and they all work full-time jobs. Like for example, someone who comes to mind is Haley Smith on Wolfpack. She's a chemical engineer. Like she works crazy hours, um, has a really high stress um, demanding, mentally engaging job that has like crazy hours. And she was in the white Jersey at Redlands for best amateur. So like there are so many women who have been doing this, like balancing the job, balancing cycling because they have to, but then there's also circumstances where like we choose to just because cycling is so like physically, demanding but it's also nice to have something that you can turn your focus to so all of your like self-worth is not just reliant on your performance if you have a bad day or something like that do you think that gives you additional freedom if you are a purely professional athlete so you play baseball and you play in the major leagues or you are a hockey player in the nhl where your performance on the ice or on the ball field is all that matters for your financial well-being. If you are a bike racer, your financial well-being is based on how good you are at that thing that you're getting paid for rather than how good you are at being a bike racer. And it means that you have this additional level of freedom to just say, you know what? I'm committing to this or if things get rough and things get emotionally dragging in the sport, you can just say, you know what, I need to step back and then you don't have to deal with it. But you're also not hitting this like major financial crush of being like, you know what, mental health time checking out. Well, I like kind of like you alluded to, I think it's very reliant on the finances because like the NHL or (laughs) some of these Like if you're a football player, you're getting paid millions. And if you look at women's cycling salaries on UCI teams, for example, like some UCI teams for women don't even pay. They don't make a salary or it's something like $7,000 for the entire year. And even on the world tour level, the women are making their base salary is the same as men's pro continental, not men's world tour. So I think I was actually having a conversation with someone about this like a week or so ago. And he was saying like, wow, like women's racing has really come to a whole nother level. And that's like on the world tour scale. And it's like, yeah, they're starting to get paid more. (laughs) Um, So yeah, they can like devote more of themselves to it. Um, But in terms of like freedom, I don't know if it's freedom to not have a choice, but to work another job so that you can financially support yourself if your racing is not good enough to get you paid that weekend, if that makes sense. I'm not going to name teams or name names of people just because I I don't think that that's important right now. But like, I know some of the salaries, quote unquote, salaries for some of the riders in the American bike racing peloton. 
as far as crit racers and road racers, whatever it happens to be, you have to race crits in order to be a road racer in the United States too. So in 2019, the most well-paid woman that I was aware of made $5,000 for crit racing. That sounds about right. <laughs> That's salary. Like, I, I love it when people are like, well, I got a bike and helmet and shoes too. I'm like, my employer gave me my computer. I mean, like the things that I need to do my job are not compensation. Right. You know, that is the tool that I use. My compensation is the dollars, the green money that you give me. That's the thing that makes me professional at my job. Not the fact that you gave me, you know, like a, a mouse pad. Yeah, well, they didn't. I actually bought my mouse pad. That's why it's epically awesome. Uh, you know, in 2021, the most well-paid female bike racer that I'm aware of was $10,000. And so, like, that's that's a, for bike racing, that's pretty good, but it is not a living wage. On the men's side, you know, I got secondhand information that some of the guys are paid in the 20s, but, like, I can't confirm that you know, in any way, shape or form, it seems accurate, but none of the guys that I know right now who I talk to on a daily basis are getting paid at all. They're domestic elite riders. They are at that level where you would, you know, you wouldn't think automatically that they're getting paid. But when you look in the results, you're like first, second, third. Oh yeah. You guys are all not getting paid a salary. Mm -hmm. And so the point I was trying to make and, and Alan jump in here because, you know, you're one of those guys who, you know, is on a team that's putting people on the podium in races that used to be won exclusively by guys who are getting paid cash for their job. Now they're getting beaten by George Simpson. Now they're getting beaten by Sean Gardner. You know, like it's. It's a new world out there and it's a new model of bike racing in the United States. And I think we need to celebrate the teams that are doing it and the sponsors who are giving the teams the capacity to give riders the tools that they need to do, you know, this, this sport. I think the thing that we, that it really comes down to is that like cycling in the United States even at, you know, the level of the tour of Gila, at least these days is a hobby. Like we all are very passionate about cycling, but we all also recognize that, you know, we're not by definition, we're not professional cyclists, but training, you know, 15, 20 hours a week, going, driving across the country, spending hours doing that, going to tour of Gila, going to Redlands, like professional races, UCI races, is something that we are extremely passionate about and want to do and are willing to do that for helmet, bike, and whatever prize winnings we might get. Um, and, you know, at this point in cycling's history in the U.S., like, the only people who really value that are a small, you know, relatively to NFL or NBA, like a very small contingent of fans. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing is that teams are doing what they can to find the guys who who want to be at these races and be competitive at them and then balance that with more sort of like a development side of their team so they can bring in younger riders have them do these high level races in the u.s and then hopefully send them on to to something larger yeah and i think we need to point out that the kids are all right you know when you look at the younger guys who are at these races, you look at somebody like Tyler Stites, who won Redlands, the GC, won Tucson, won, you know, Valley of the Sun. Or you look at you look at Xander, your teammate Xander White, the Kiwi Triple X. You know, he is a young guy. They're both very relatively young guys. Ethan Crane, another person who comes to mind, Sean Guidish. You know, these are people who could they have the capacity to make the next step. You know, I think the the running pool right now on Tyler is that it's not a matter of when, if it's a matter of when he gets picked up by a pro Conti or pro, you know, tour team. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think Xander's on his way too. So the kids are all right. We've got that U23 base where they will go on to the next level. But if we're going to continue to have a vibrant 
American bike racing scene where we have really great athletes who are worth working and worth looking at and worth watching and talking about like we are right now. You know, it's just, you got to accept it. This is the, this is the model that currently is working and like kudos to CS Velo, like Meredith and Kurt, you guys absolutely nailed it. It was probably not an easy, you know, path forward. I think that we can all say that for sure, but like you guys nailed it. You did totally did. I mean, yeah, it's hard to disagree, but I think one thing that they, I mean, Kurt is like a wizard with um, making connections with, with brands and businesses and then like making sure that those are thriving and that we're providing those, you know, sponsors with everything that they could want. But also like everybody that's on the team has gone through like a, I don't want to say extensive, but like a pretty good like interview process to make sure that the people that they're bringing on like will fit with our team really well. And I think, you know, you could talk to Tanner, our new DS for the year, former UHC guy forever. Uh, He'll tell you that one thing that's unique about our team is that everyone just gets along super well. Uh, We don't have any like arguments within the team. Like no one, there's never any crit beef going on within the, the squad. So we mesh really well. And like with that comes, you know, being willing to ride really hard and like want to, kill yourself in a race for your teammates. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been working out for us so far this year. So let's, let's talk about something that's similar to what we're talking about now, but bike racing requires a lot of moving around and driving. It seems to be. And with that, especially when we talk about crit series is or stage race GC events, the logistics of this become extremely challenging and extremely taxing you know celine how many different host houses have you been in since the beginning of april i'm counting <laughs> we're in now I'm, I'm in the fifth house that i have i've swapped five different times to different homes since the beginning of april you've made a lot of friends with dogs oh yeah <laughs> but like the wear and tear on on just your soul of waking up in that many different places under that many different circumstances and learning new routes and things like that, has that impacted your ability to just live? Well, I, I did get a lot more stressed about travel um, before staying at Homestretch, but I learned so much at Homestretch from the other athletes about managing the things that I can manage to bring a piece of home with me everywhere I go. As a bike racer, you like learn to, to find a rhythm in the travel. Like you get used to living out of your bag. I've been living out of my bag for like several months now and I'm starting to lose things. Like I'm starting to get a little less organized. So we're nearing the point where I need to be like in a house again, I think, um, and just have all my things in one home base. But yeah, you learn to, you learn to do things and get into a rhythm. Um, and I'm actually really enjoying it because now I start to, I'll get tired of like riding in the same place for a while. Um, and I, I do like to see new places and get to meet new people and the connections that you form while you're out on the road are pretty incredible. Like my host in Silver City, she's probably like in her 70s, but I want to be her best friend because she's just so cool and <laughs> just has a really good outlook on life. And I never would have met her if it wasn't for bike racing, you know, so that's pretty special. How, what were some of the things that the folks at the home stretch kind of gave you as far as advice about living, living out of a suitcase, but living well out of a suitcase? Well, so it kind of starts with identifying the stressors that you experience out on the road. So interestingly enough, one of my stressors is where do I find coffee? Um, I am very much addicted to coffee. So now I have AeroPress, I have my own little hand grinder, and I travel with a bag of beans and a kettle. So no matter where I am, I know I'll be able to make myself that same cup of coffee every morning. And that's a little bit of consistency and routine that otherwise I might be relying on just luck and the proximity of a coffee shop or whether or not where I'm staying has coffee making equipment. So little things like that really add up, um, whether that's 
yeah, whether it's your morning routine or something else that is just a little bit of a stressor, but enough that it makes a difference in your day, identifying that and just managing those things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, when I was in LaGrange, Georgia for speed week, I found a little hole in the wall diner that was a great, great place for breakfast. Like they made incredible pancakes, like can't knock them for their pancakes. Their coffee was objectionably awful. Like it was epically awful. And like I I learned from Carrie Werner to travel with the the compressible uh, funnel for the, you know, for the uh, pour over coffee. I've got the great grinder, the burr grinder, the hand burr grinder. I've got all that. Like I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. Alan, when you did the Great American Stage Race, that is Redlands and Gila, you put your body under a tremendous amount of stress. And you put your body under so much stress that you ended up getting sick, which is terrible because I know it 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 knocked you out of Gila. But, you know, in, in that breath, in that same breath, like you had to learn something from that experience. You know, when you talk about the logistics of getting yourself ready, doing nutrition, making sure that you're getting the rest and the recovery and, you know, all of that that comes with being a a athlete at this elite level, what were some of the things that you saw that were working for you? It's hard to not sound, not cliched, but just repetitive. I mean, recovery is paramount, making sure that you are absolutely eating and especially drinking enough every single day. Um, because as soon as you have a day where you don't eat or drink enough, like you're just done. Um, especially doing a stage race when it's hot out and Redlands and Kilo both are just, you know, very, very hard. Yeah. So it, it really helps just to, to kind of have either a go-to meal that you're going to eat. Um, definitely right after the stage, but especially for dinner, you know, for breakfast every day during a stage race, have the same thing, just oatmeal with chia seeds, blueberries, and um, some maple syrup. Uh, our team's maple syrup budget has just gone like through the roof this year because that's pretty much what we all have. But yeah, I mean, even still, I feel like I did everything like pretty well perfectly. Maybe during the crit at Redlands, I was a little off on drinking enough, but you know, I was definitely sleeping a lot, eating a lot, and still on the transfer day from Redlands to Gila, ended up getting sick, just like felt something in the back of my throat. And yeah, by Thursday, the end of the stage on Thursday, I was just completely done. For me, getting to do this thing with Project Echelon and the Project Echelon files has been like so illuminating because I have access now to basically like Eric Hill and Isaiah Newkirk and Joe Carpasassi and Lauren Tucker Hall's like notes on on logistics and planning. So each each race has a Google Doc that goes with it. Who's coming to the race? When does their flight land? Who's picking them up? Where they're sleeping? And then there's all these other notes that go with it. Where's the good food? What's the good hotel? What's the good host house? You know, what time is the race at? What do you need to consider about it? Because like with a crit, for example, a lot of the crits are later in the afternoon. So you've got to have not just good breakfast. You've got to have a good place for a light meal slash lunch or whatever. And then you've got to make sure that you know what's going to be open late at night. You know, with with Speed Week, it was an insane amount of driving between races. So, you know, from Spartanburg to... Atlanta is three hours, three and a half hours, depending on traffic. And that's set, that's Friday, Saturday, Atlanta to LaGrange is another two hours, hour and a half. Maybe if you're, if you're lucky and you're going 85 miles an hour down I 85, you know, you cover a, a large amount of distance in, in that series that you don't necessarily cover at Tulsa or gateway or Intelli. But like, even with those races, you know, like, you're racing for an hour, 90 minutes, whatever it happens to be, and then you go to the next one. And if you don't keep on top of it, 
If you don't keep on top of knowing what's next, where the next race is, when the next race starts, how long is it going to take to get to that place? Like a lot of things that you, you wish you could put off to the next morning because you're exhausted and you're tired. And the last thing you want to do is like map these things out while you're doing your training on a, on like a Monday or Tuesday, like three weeks before. But that's, that's what you got to do in order to stay smart with it. And I bet you that's what a lot of the best DSs in the crit and American road racing scene are doing. And that's why, you know, you've, you've got to give them serious kudos or as I pronounce it, kudos to, you know, (laughs) to, I don't know where I came up with that one, but like, I'm going to go with it. but like that's that's what it is. I mean, that's that's how you win these races. I think Steve Cullen like said it like two years ago. It was filled with about fifteen expletives, but I mean, he made the point that like winning USA Crits, which was his goal at the time as a team, showed logistical mastery, and that's like wow, that is the least sexy way to describe victory, but like. That's what it's all about. Getting the person to the line is is one thing, but getting persons to the line when they are ready and capable of going, that's the next thing. That's the thing that makes these teams successful. Yeah, that's where you really got to give a shout out to all the like crit privateers out there too who like, you know, don't have a team. They feel like they can be competitive in these races and they want to go and do speed week and you know, they're probably taking off time from work to do it. They have to sort out all that stuff on their own. They have to like try and convince their partner or like parent to drive them around and do these, you know, three hour drives at 11 o'clock at night after they just finished their, their Athens twilight crit. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a harsh world out there, but it's also worth it. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about a crit and not privateers because the crit in question that we're going to talk about is the first stop of the ACC, the American criterium cup. And that was Sonny King in Anniston, Alabama. It was about a month ago already. I can't believe it. But the one thing about this, I don't know if the promoters of Sonny King listen to the show. Actually, I do know that they do uh, because I get commentary from Marilyn all the time and she's a wonderful woman. You know, they did what we asked them to do. We said make a top quality live feed with good broadcasters. They went out, they spent the money to do it. They found uh, Lauren Tucker Hall and Brad Soner, a tandem commentators, and the coverage was flawless. It was awesome. Please, Rochester, do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it can't be understated how good and like how much of a step up that live stream was from you know what we got last year and what we've seen anywhere else. I mean they had a they had a freaking drone out there and like those drone shots at least for the women's race were so sick. Um yeah, they did an awesome job and hopefully that is what all of the like uh American Criterium Cups will will look like. Yeah, elaborating on that a little bit. Like all of the shots made sense. Like it was they knew the course, they knew how the course was going to be executed. And so the shots were so strategic and well thought out. And there's, I just, I really love it when people demonstrate an attention to detail. Something about that just makes me really, really happy. Like someone put a lot of effort into this and deserves a raise because the shots really just made sense. And they told a story throughout the race and especially with the drone footage. And I know some people were trying to make it controversial by claiming safety hazards. But I actually spoke um, online with the the drone pilot and he does, this is his career. Like he does this and he's really good at what he does. Clearly like he was able to navigate like telephone lines and things like that just flawlessly. Um, and it was really well executed. I can't state that enough. And it turned out to be a really incredible race in both the women's and the men's side. I mean, it bears noting, you know, the the overarching trend, I guess we could say. Let's start with the women's side of it. The overarching trend in all the races, whether it's Sunny King, Spartanburg, or, you know, Athens or any of the Speed Week races, 
is that Legion of Los Angeles, the combination of Skylar and Sam Schneider, Alexis and Kendall Ryan, and the rest of the women who are racing with them has been to just demonstrate sheer dominance. I mean, that's that's what it is. They are sheerly dominating their competition right now. Do you do you agree with that? Yes, but I'm not going to lie. I'm a little disappointed in the way they're doing it because they have such a versatile roster that it's a little bit depressing to just see them resort to the lead out train. And yeah, it makes for great pictures and great drone shots and great footage, but they're just doing what the guys do. And it makes sense for the Legion men's team to have that kind of a lead out train because they have two incredible pure sprinters. But these women can win from a breakaway. They can win solo. They could really animate the women's peloton and to just watch them shut everything down so they can have their moment on the last lap is like, I mean, this is definitely a hot take, but it's a little bit of a letdown. Well, do you feel let down by Maggie Coles Lister or Emily Ehrlich or Jennifer Valenti? These are the names of the people who have been able to successfully infiltrate the the Legion lead out. You know, Jennifer Valente, uh, you know, she's an Olympian. She has a track gold medal from the last Olympics, and she's out there infiltrating the Legion lead out and doing a pretty damn good job of it, too. Yeah, I think they're doing an incredible job. And going back to Sonny King, like watching Maggie fight for position in those last laps, like she's just an absolute amazing bike racer um but it's i mean and this is why i love the footage because you see maggie going from so far back and if that sprint had been like 150 meters longer like it might have been a different result um so obviously they're executing or legion is executing the lead out train beautifully but it's just i think for for other teams it can be a little bit frustrating to have the race always end in a sprint when these riders on Legion are so capable of executing the race differently and really strategizing and making it more of a chess game, like more cerebral, but it kind of seems like a lead out train is just kind of basic. Hey, call it what you want. I mean, it is, that's what they've been doing all the way up until Athens. And at Athens, the field exploded, which is two years in a row that I've turned Athens on like five minutes after the race started only to discover that I had no clue where any of the riders were because it broke into three parts. And one of those parts was just Kendall being Kendall and we're off the front. So, you know, hard racing is hard racing. And Legion did a good job at Athens. Different story, same result. I want to talk briefly about uh, Best Buddies and Alfredo Rodriguez. The guy has been on fire lately in Fuego, to borrow the Spanish that that team seems to speak much see. more better, see, much more better than I do. But um, I I want to talk about Spartanburg for a second because I was in corner one at Spartanburg. And when you hear my discussion with Brandon Fury on uh, next week's show, you're, you're, you'll probably understand how I'm going to dork out about corner one. But if you look at the laps at Spartanburg and you look at the laps at Athens and, and you look at a lot of the laps of the Speed Week races, they're all insanely short. They're like one kilometer or less in length. So, yeah. Super quick. So if you look at, if you look at Spartanburg, you know, you've got lap times of 104, 104, 105, 106, 108. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Those are the masters men's lap times. Let's look at the one, two, threes. Oh, wait, they're the exact same lap times. It's just a fast race until you get down to the very, very, very end where they go 55 seconds, 53 seconds, and then ludicrous speed. <laughs> and ludicrous speed is all due to the Best Buddies lead-out train. In both cases of Sonny King and in Spartanburg, the Best Buddies lead-out train emerged late, mm-hmm. and it emerged with force. Yeah, And I don't know, these guys must be the best possum playing team around but 
they they just teleporter style Star Trek sort of like appear in the middle of the field at the front. All of a sudden, boom, it's six guys. I mean, and yeah, it's it's like hard to describe how hard it actually is to do that. You know, we saw Legion lead out basically the entire race last year where they would just put all of their guys on the front at the beginning and go. But to, yeah, to be able to like racing all day and then with 10 laps to go, get all of your guys together like mid-pack and then just ram jam your way forward, especially on a super fast course like Spartanburg is and those turns, like you're full speed through those. Like they are... They look like wide turns, but when they're going that fast, like they're very, very narrow. Yeah, it is super impressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked to Hernandez earlier this year and he told us this is what they were going to do. And we're seeing them do it pretty, pretty flawlessly. And they're they're coming over the top on good teams, you know, at Sunny King. Uh, Project Echelon had set up camp along with ButcherBox at the front. Uh, admittedly, both of those teams only had two or three guys with them at the time. And, you know, in the case of of uh, Project Echelon, it was Will Harden who was leading out Brandon Fury. And I think Will had been just basically sitting at the front through like that entire race, you know, <laughs> chasing down Michael, uh, among other people. And at Spartanburg, it was a similar story, but just sub out Project Echelon for Miami Blazers. Those guys were riding the front there at the very end. And then all of a sudden pop right around the corner comes, you know, the best buddies train. That's just who they are. I want to finish here with Athens because it's the most recent race that happened. And it's the race that, uh, you know, on the men's side, because uh, we've talked already about the women's side, but on the men's side, it was a very surprising race, but it shouldn't have been as surprising as it was, but it was a surprising race in the sense that it was a slaughter fest again, you know, of the field, (laughs) you know, Alan, you've been there, you know, how bad that hill is 80 K it's a one K course. You hit that hill every kilometer, every minute. I, my, I was watching it with a friend who didn't appreciate how steep that hill is until he pulled up Google earth and he did the street view and he started comparing the angle of the sidewalk with the angle of the building that was built. So like, can you, cause TV and is bad with dimensions and everything like that. Can you tell the listeners how steep is that hill? I mean, you're out of the saddle every time you go up it and between the steepness and just how fast you're going. Like you're not just going to be sat down and like power your way through it. It's, it's it, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Does it emotionally just beat the piss out of you that you you get to the top of it and you're just like, I got 30 seconds to rest and recover before I have to hit that son of a bitch again? Yeah, I mean, it's not even 30 seconds. Like, you go downhill for a little bit around turn one, kind of flow through turn two, but then you're going uphill again before you get, like, the actual downhill. So it's like you do literally everything you can to hang on to the bunch, like up through the finish line. Then you like close your eyes for a little bit. You open them again. You have to like get back up another hill. Yeah, it's just it's it's one of the like few races of the year where genuinely just like the strongest person is going to win. Where it's like it's not checkers. It's not chess. It's just like brute force. If you can ride up that hill for 80k harder than anybody else can you're gonna win the race like i i make deals with myself i don't know if you do this in a race when it's getting really really hard and you're just like you can make five more laps just make five more laps you can pull out then but just make five more laps (laughs) and then you get to that five laps and you're like well that that wasn't bad maybe you could make three more laps and and you start to like cut things down a little bit it's like a way of just chopping a tree down as opposed to, you know, trying to do it with one big swing. You do it with little tiny swings sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, What I was doing when I got dropped last year was like really trying to lag the second climb as much as I could. And then like just get back on the bunch, like right at the bottom of the hill. Uh, But eventually the field got like so small and strung out and I was going so slow up the hill that it didn't work anymore. And I was just like, oh, Okay, I'm done. I'm off. So in the men's race, it was a breakaway similar to the women in the sense that like 
a large chunk of the field broke away from the main group. And, you know, eventually it made it to the point where I think it was 12 or 13 guys who got up and lapped. And with speed week races, lapping the field is not uncommon compared to like gateway where if you lap the field, that means you're like three miles ahead of the rest of the field. So, you know, with, with Athens, it's a hard race, but you know, you can really benefit from being in a small group because corner three and corner four are pretty tight, aren't they? Yeah. Super tight. Um, bottom of the hill, corner three, uh, it tightens up a whole lot. And then if you stick to the outside, it's like pretty like rutted out and there's a lot of like breaking bumps almost. So it's, kind of not a place you want to be so yeah being able to like choose your line um not have to break so much going into that turn the accelerations out of turn four and up to the hill like aren't nearly as bad as if you're sitting like 40th wheel in the bunch yeah and actually one of our guys connor uh new guy from bermuda was there solo and he was one of the 13 guys that lapped up on the field um and talking with him i mean well, first off, that group was proof that the strongest guys went on that course. Like, there were two Legion guys, three bus buddy, Best Buddies guys. Connor was in it. Tom Gibbons was in it. Just, like, pretty much all of your favorites to win that race were in that group that got that got around. Yeah, and, you know, once they, they get around, we've all had that discussion. Like, when you're in the breakaway, do you lap? Do you not lap? Do you just wait? You know, like when you've got best buddies and Legion and they've got like three other guys in the main field, you want to lap obviously. But if you're Tom, you know, I mean, Tom Gibbons had his full team in the field too. You know, I think, uh, it was just one of those things where it's going to get messy real quick. Once you get through that lapping process, because you've got to go from 50th wheel now all the way back up to the front. And it's, it's an an invitation for chaos. And I have no idea how these guys follow and track each other through the field. You know, like it, it's dark already. (laughs) And now you're adding to it delirium and like four other people who are wearing the same kit as you, you know, it's not everybody in the field is not Sam Boardman with beautiful flowing locks of hair that are easy to identify. But the thing that surprised me about that race is not that Ty Magner got second place. It's that Ty Magner got beat by Brian Gomez from Best Buddies. And I think it surprised Brian Gomez, too, that he, you know, came through and, like Michael Hernandez had said, Brian loves to win, but he also likes watching his other teammates win. Seeing Brian, knowing how his year last year played out and how he's, on this bigger new team or better team this year, it's just got to be amazingly satisfying to him to walk away with that Athens twilight victory. People call it like the Super Bowl of crit racing, basically. And there's no better thing to win than the Super Bowl. I mean, I got to imagine he got a little bit of extra satisfaction out of beating Ty Magner, like on his, his home turf, basically. Yeah. A lot of people pointed out that Ty lives and breathes, Athens, Georgia, and that Ty had never won that race. So, you know, that's that's a pretty huge victory for for him when he gets it, because, you know, it's a matter of time sort of thing. I also thought that it was interesting that third place that day was Liam White from ButcherBox and that ButcherBox put multiple people in the breakaway, too. You know, uh, I think it was Sam Rosenholtz who was up there with Liam which was a pretty interesting thing to to see ButcherBox going on the offensive like that. Uh, you know, I'm used to them being, you know, Spencer Movenzade, you know, driven. And now they're being driven. Granted, Spencer was in the breakaway too, so why not? I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Liam got up there and did something good in, in that final sprint, which is a good thing for him because he's new for the team. And, Hopefully it, it it shows what the future will bring for them. Sorry, do we want to talk about the women's Athens race or? I mean, do you want to talk about it in more detail? I'm game. I mean, I feel like everything I said about the women's Legion team, it was the opposite at Athens. Like it really was dynamic and tactical. And ultimately it was like any one of them could have won but it wasn't just let's lead it out for the last few laps and shut everything down 
it was way more strategic and you could see that happening. So tell us how, how was it strategic? You know, what, what are the things that you as a, as a knowing spectator, you know, of the sport, understanding the tactics that are, that are in play here. What about the way that the women from Legion approached it made it so opposite day strategic tactical compared to just brute force? We've got the most horsepower. Well, kind of like with the men's race, it just got absolutely obliterated after lap one. And Legion had, I want to say, three riders in a break of nine. Um, And shout out to my teammate Summers for being in the break. Uh, And she also had a really strategic and clever race. Like she didn't do anything she didn't need to do, which is awesome. They would just play their cards like one rider would go up the road and at one point, Maybe they had four riders in the break. I think they had four because it was the two sisters. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of them would kind of just get bored and make want to make everyone else do some work. So they would attack the group and go up the road. And then there were, I'm trying to remember the composition of the break, but there were, I think, two other teams that had two riders, possibly. Or was it 2024 that had two riders jennifer valenti ended up in third so 2024 at least had her yes okay so it was jennifer and emily ehrlich yes because i remember at one point emily and skylar were up the road together and emily was like let's go and skylar was like nah and after emily took a pull skylar attacked her which i was like bro (laughs) um and so that got shut down but I think Skylar just knew Emily's got a mean kick. Like she, she can sprint. So like if Skylar wasn't feeling good, like you don't want to be sprinting against Emily. Like she, she can sprint. Um, so it was things like that. Like you could see the gears turning as soon as there was a lull, one of them, it was instinctual. One of them would go, um, so that no one else could really be that fresh for the finish. Like they had four in a break of nine. So they really made everyone else suffer. <laughs> and then it, it was a Orion sister victory. So Kendall finishing off the front of the breakaway uh, by quite some distance in first place. Her sister Alexis winning the breakaway sprint, followed by Jennifer Valenti. You know, there was a little bit of gamesmanship in the middle of the race because this is part of the Speed Week series. So I don't, but like, in talking to people who were there, they're like, eh, we don't, we're racing to win Athens. It, it's that big of a race. Like the rest of the series, yeah, there's a lot of money on the line, but like, you know, winning Athens on TV is a big deal for everybody involved. And I just want to point out that Kendall actually lapped the field. So she attacked the break and lapped the field, um, which is insane. She did that alone. I know we're getting like real long-winded here, but I also just like to kind of double back to sort of, you know, the future of cycling in the U.S. And like, obviously, CS Velo, Project Echelon, stage race teams are like doing really well there and sort of like remodeling, if you will. But, you know, talking about Sunny King and how great that live stream was, and then teams like Tom Gibbons and Automatic, um, the Legion guys for sure still, um, Legion women, you know, as much as I love stage racing, like I think Criterium Racing is still a very huge part of the future of American, like Criterium or American cycling. Um, so to see those teams like really putting all of their cards into the American Criterium Cup and like Butcher Box, of course, also Best Buddies, all these guys is really good to see. And I think sort of that comboed with the the excellent live streams that we've been seeing is going to go a long way for American cycling as all or American cycling as well. So I guess, yeah, I just wanted to give like a shout out to all those guys who are, who are doing all these drives, all these crazy racing, just like to put on a show for us. And also the races for stepping up, like the race promoters, it kind of comes full circle. Like there's a reason the Legion women weren't at Redlands or at Gila. Like, I think they walked away on the day day to day, every single day at speed week with more money than they would have won if they took like every single Jersey at Gila or Redlands, because I, I don't know about the Redlands payout, but the Gila payout was less than half of the men's payout 
for the UCI women. It was pretty horrific when I saw that. Not surprising, but still horrific. Um, and it was a total of $16,000 for five days of gnarly racing. And that's not even 16000 for the winner. Um, and I'm sure they made that on the daily at Speed Week. Yeah, versus like equal payout for men and women, all of Speed Week, Sunny yeah. King, all of them. Props to crit race promoters for that equal pay. Again, as much as we love the stage racing. I can tell you for, for 100% certainty that they were having fun before their races. Uh, they would set their tent up right there at the start-finish line, and they were all of the all the Legion women and the Legion men were there just hanging out, having fun, watching bike racing, getting rowdy for sure. When we would come by in the Masters field, I could hear Ty Magner yelling and screaming just like everybody else. So, guys, thank you so much for helping lay it all out here for us uh, in this in this recap. And good luck with Joe Martin. Thank you. If you want to keep our shows under two hours, donate to the Wide Angle Podium. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is super fun. Looking forward to like the next block of updates. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the full bevy and lineup of shows in this, the independent cycling media mecca center of the universe. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Rob Kelly, with help from Celine Oberholzer and Alan Schroeder. We will be back next week with the second chapter, the second installment of the Project Echelon Files, kind of calling it Broken Arrows. Uh, Maybe I'll stick with that title. Maybe I won't. Who knows? But definitely worth following along with Ricky, Monk, and Ethan, and all the guys on Project Echelon as they go through the 2020 season. As they go through the 2022 season. So come back here next week and join us for more stories from our Criterium Nation.